Today on episode number 301 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, my colleague Andrew Stenhouse joins me to talk about positive work-life spillover. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Hello and welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Joining me on today's episode is Andrew Andy Stenhouse, my colleague at Vanguard University, he teaches graduate courses in Vanguard University's organizational psychology program, including behavior and psychology in organizations, psychology of leadership and motivation, organizational systems, development, and change. He also occasionally teaches a team leadership and conflict management class for the leadership studies program. And prior to returning to Vanguard University, he founded and directed the organizational psychology program for Concordia University, Irvine, California's first bachelor of science degree in organizational psychology designed specifically for working professionals. He also occasionally teaches organizational behavior at California State University Fullerton and the Chicago School of Professional Psychology and Career Development Theories and Techniques at Pepperdine University. Andy, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thank you. Good to be here. We've worked together a long time now. Yes, we have. We've been through quite a bit together. We have been through quite a bit. I don't know, though, the origin story of how you first got interested in this research area. You know, I think I've seen parts of my own professional career where I've just, you know, have been so excited and so engaged. And then there are other times when it was just very difficult. And I think probably for most people, we know what it's like when we're trying to fulfill job responsibilities that don't really fit who we are. And uh, we've also been maybe working for employers that don't fit with who we are. I think both of those cases have, have certainly impacted me teaching organizational psychology, and then also working as a clinical counselor, I see firsthand, both with students and clients, how many people are miserable at work and take it home to the family. And so what's interesting is is I've seen so many people come in with relational difficulties, but once we start talking, we realize that's really not the issue. The biggest issue or the core of the issue is how unhappy they are at work. And they just simply take that home with them. And home is kind of where the fallout happens. And uh, so this has been a kind of a developing passion of mine. And I realized, as many do, we spend more of our waking hours at work than we do anyplace else, including home. So I think that's probably the place where we have the biggest impact to make positive change. I know that people ask you frequently about a related topic. I realize it's not a direct overlap, but just this quest for what most people call work-life balance. As you work with clients and then also in your own research, where do you discover that that term may fail us? 
Well, currently we, we, we've kind of gotten away from that term. We don't use work-life balance as much as we look at, at work-life integration. And I think that's been a multi-generational development in this, this conversation. You know, if you think of the traditionalists and the, and the, the early uh, boomers, we kind of were taught, leave your personal life at home. But that was kind of the, you know, the bourgeoning of the, the briefcase you know, leave your personal life at home, but please take your work home with you and and get stuff done. And so that was kind of the expectation. Then later on, we had the later boomers and early Gen Xers kind of revolted and said, no, we're going to bring our personal life to work, but then we're going to leave our professional life at work as well. And so that kind of didn't work. And I think now where we are, and particularly with millennials and Gen Xers, it's like, nah, it's it's my work and my home. I'm going to just live my life. And if I need to take a couple of hours to take my kids to school or to soccer, I'm going to do that. And I'll work in the evening after they go to bed. And so it's we've kind of just you know, shifted our expectations, but also our patterns. And it's, you know, it's more integrating than it is balance. I know that there aren't any hard and fast rules on these things. I've observed people who will talk about really wanting there to be a super hard barrier. And, and actually, the people I'm thinking of tend to be compensated on an hourly basis, not a salary basis. So that would make sense to me. Those are good boundaries. Those are boundaries mm-hmm. that are supported both by labor laws and ethics, you know, that you should work for those things you're being paid for. I do, however, think it could potentially hold people back if they continue to have that paradigm. As I think about moving up to a salaried position and moving up in terms of one's leadership position, that being super rigid about those barriers could potentially hold them back. And particularly the example that you just gave, one of the things I mentioned quite frequently about the joy that I have in the work that I do, I do work hard. I will occasionally, for example, work on Saturdays. But to me, it's not like I'm working Monday through Friday from seven to four or eight to five. I get to be there when my kids have events at school. I get to pick them up at 3.30 sometimes. We'll go to a park. So I don't have those rigid boundaries and I think that's helpful in my particular profession. I suppose there's a lot of variables and contexts that that we don't have one blanket answer. But do you have thoughts around the rigid yeah. boundaries versus the? Yeah, I do actually. <clears throat> there's a couple things that come to mind. One is autonomy and control. Actually, that's two. But so we have a fine balance. When we talk about highly engaged employees, what we're hoping we see is they're they're kind of reinvesting their discretionary energy back into the work. And we love that. And in fact, those of us who love our jobs, you know, my weekends are spent when I can read material in my discipline. It's relaxing for me. Preparing for a new lecture is energizing. And so that's often a great way that I can relax and kind of get rejuvenated over the weekends. Grading papers is not one of those areas. I have to carve out time during the week for that. So we have, I think we have our own personal differences of what energizes us and what doesn't. So there's always a fine line between engagement and and just burning ourselves out. But I think when we find people who absolutely love what they do, they don't want to shut it off. I think where I see the big issue is in control. I get to control if I want to read a new book or read a new article over the weekend. What I don't like is the infringement on my off time. And that's typically something like emails. And 
Now, granted, I don't have to respond to an email if it comes in, you know, Saturday morning. And largely, this is, I think, somewhat predicated on the culture where we work. Some people, there's an expectation that no matter what time I send an email to you, I should hear back from you within a couple of hours. And, you know, that could be in the middle of the night, that could be on the weekend. And so, culture, organizational culture drives a little bit of a lot of those expectations. That's where I think we're seeing more companies actually even shutting off their servers at five or six in the evening over the weekend with a message. We received your email that uh, will be delivered to the inbox, you know, first thing tomorrow morning or first thing Monday morning. So I think the balance is it's, it's really the control of the individual. Do I have control of what I'm doing in my quote unquote off hours? I have no problem, as you do, as you said, if you love your job, you don't want to just completely let it go, but you do want to control what aspects of it you're able to focus on. You spoke about your weekends and enjoying to read material related to your discipline. I feel very much the same. The person I report to, our provost, Pete, he had once shared with me that I mean, it was in a congratulatory way. He was appreciating the contributions I make. It was not at all a negative thing, but he was talking about that he really wishes for me to spend even more time in the deep thinking. And he said, he, his, his off comment was, yeah, I'd love to see you reading at work. And just, I couldn't even, I couldn't even let him continue because the thought of just being there at work, pulling out a book, I can't, I can't even still to this day, it makes me chuckle so much. Yeah, I very much did love him sharing that. I felt edified just by the the heresy that I felt like he was encouraging me to pursue that, what felt like a very out of the sorts way to work, but I did it. I did appreciate that. Yeah, that I do have that kind of autonomy and control and he respects the contributions I can make so much that he sees that I'm thinking back to the, the one thing that I don't even know where this came from, but somebody about eight to 10 years ago was talking about what many of the presidents over the history of our country have said the hardest thing about that job is, and it's having that time to do that deep thinking. And, that, and just how yeah. critically they treasured it and the time and space that they put apart for it. And I mean, of course, that's a totally different example, but it is a big part of some of our lives. And a lot of that to me is context. I am not able to do deep work when I'm on campus. I feel like that's my time to exercise my strengths in terms of relationships and teaching, you know, the mentoring, the coaching and working with colleagues. Right. Right. And I think you're, I think you're on the market when we have control over our rhythm. That's where I think we tend to thrive. And the rhythm is what we get to do when we get to do. And that includes context where we get to do that. And so, for, you know, maybe for you, certainly for me, reading outside and the fresh air is somehow that's almost become sacred space. Trying to read in my office, unless I'm looking for something rather quickly to, you know, put in a, in a paper or a presentation or something is, is very different than sitting down with a book and, and a highlighter and kind of going through it from beginning to end. That's done either in my living room or my office at home or on the back patio. What's a time in your life where you would describe yourself as being really out of balance, not integrated in terms of work life. And, and what did you learn from that experience? Probably two things. I realize I have spent in 25 years of my academic career, I've kind of always had one foot in administration and the other in the classroom. And there have been times when I 
I realized I just I absolutely thrive in the classroom. I, I love the student interaction. And there are certain aspects about my personality. I'm kind of, I'm a very organized person. So as you know, in academia, if you can use Excel, you become the dean of something. <laughs> and so, and there's, you know, great peers that you work with. I love team collaboration. But there are other people that are more gifted in administration than I am. And I think once I realized I don't have to do that, I can let other people do it, really freed me to what I just say, I'm much more intrigued and energized by mentoring than I am management. And when I mentor, I think that's what I do in a classroom. It's teaching instruction because I get to be a co-learner with our students. For me, I teach primarily graduate students in our industrial organizational psychology program. So they come in with experience, they come in with ideas, and it's very energizing for me. So when I think where I've not kind of been in my zone professionally, and I've kind of been out of sorts, it's when I've spent time away from that environment, more on the management side than the mentoring side. What I hear you describing is a pretty radical kind of self-awareness because once we do get into those positions it's pretty tough to say well actually i need to <laughs> i need to sort of knock this thing down and re re-examine all of it that has to have required i would imagine some time for reflection and and real intention in doing that yeah i i i think so cuz i know people that have gone the other direction and they go you know i really don't like the classroom i like the strategic thinking. I like working and building something and collaborating with teams. And and I absolutely get it. I think, so for me, the self-awareness is, and this is something I've said to my wife, when I realize I wake up in the morning and I'm excited to go to work, on the nights I have class, those mornings are full of energy. I get up, I get to prepare for the class, I get to look forward to it. When I know I have a day full of meetings, my morning just feels very differently. So it is a sense of self-awareness, but I think it's self-awareness after 20 years of watching what energizes me and what doesn't. I know you'll know this researcher's name. I really stumble over pronouncing it every time I wish that my husband Dave was in the room so he could coach me right now, but Mi- Michelle Chixmensi, hi, I think I did okay. Yeah. Chicksons me high. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> you did much Mikhail. better than I did. Michael, Michael. Yes. Mm-hmm. So he is the researcher who coined the term flow. Right. And that's part of what you were describing is that kind of energy that comes where you lose track of time. And I just had it happen to me the other day where I, <laughs> someone texted me, weren't we supposed to meet? And it was like, oh, I was just right in front of the computer. My phone was on mute. And I just you know, you get absorbed in it and you find yourself having more energy and an ability to focus so, so very much deeply than in other areas of your life. And I think that's important for us to pay attention to. We spend so much time talking about, you know, what do you want to be when you quote unquote grow up, which of course our students are all already adults, but what's that next step for them career wise instead of when it's such a hard question for them to answer? I don't think it's a fair question to ask either because and I've, I've said this to grad students. I actually teach a class in career development right now. And, and I've said this even to my own kids who are uh, around 30. Questions, not what do you want to do when you grow up or what do you want to do for your professional life? So what do you want to try next? Because people are going to you know, graduate. They're going to have five to seven different careers, not just jobs, but very different careers. And so you know, there are stages that we go through. 
and the workplace changes. And so you'd say, I, this, is, this is the job or this is the career I want to stay in the rest of my life. Well, that career may not, <laughs> that career may not be around for the rest of your life. Uh, we're reading more and more about you know, skilling up and basically just responding, being these protean career that can kind of be pliable to the trending work environment. That's, that's just going to continue to happen that way. I mentioned a few shows ago about a book I read called Range. I don't know if you've heard of that one, Andy, but it's really in contrast to Malcolm Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule that becoming the expert. And it's exactly what you just described, what do you want to try next? So it's the strength of having a more broad interdisciplinary look at work and school and all of that. And I don't ask my students what they want to be when they graduate. That's not a question I ask, but I don't have one to to replace it with. And I really like this. What do you want to try next? I think that would really cover what that book range talks about and really how our careers are evolving in this generation. Yeah. In, in the career uh, discipline, we've had, you know, Mark Zavikas's life design work has been around for quite a while. And happenstance theory is another way of approaching career development to where, you know, it, you look for sequencing of events and interests that move us into a direction that is more fulfilling. So, uh, yeah, I think the idea of picking your career and starting out and kind of staying on those tracks um, may not be as realistic as it once was. We have explored some of the downsides or at least the lack of relevance around work-life balance. We've talked more about work-life integration, and you've used the phrase talking about work-life spillover. What can you tell us about how work-life spillover works, both in terms of the positive and the negative? Well, there are actually four ways that we have work-life spillover. So we call it interference, we can call it enhancement. So for instance, there's a positive work to family spillover, which is what I'm interested in. We're probably most familiar with the negative work to family spillover. There's been quite a bit of actually great research from a couple of the University of North Dakota that have been researching positive family life to work spillover. And then we've seen negative family to work spiller. So there really are four ways of looking at it. You know, both directions. One is interference, and the other is is enhancement. And and I'm particularly interested in the work to family enhancement, that positive work to spillover. Because my feeling is, you know, can you imagine if we can create work environments that are so healthy and so invigorating that when people go home at the end of the day, their family life actually improves. And um, I've, I've said that. I've actually done research. I, I did a, a research project with the Santa Ana Chamber of Commerce to where I surveyed some of the people and, and they, they indicated that, you know, 82% said that being in a positive mood at work helps them go home in a positive mood. 84% said that being happy at work improves their spirits at home. 80, another 84% said having a good day at work allows them to be more optimistic and proactive with their family. So, you know, I kind of joke with my marriage and family therapist friends that I think if we focus on the workplace, we can probably do more to enhance marriages than probably anything else. And and it's not just my research, it's other researches we've, we've seen that that just tends to be the case. When I think about our colleagues and friends who 
have become recent mothers, and this is specific to women, there really can be that guilt around this. And, and some of this is to, I think we've evolved where these bonds that we have with our newborn children probably are there for a reason, so it makes sense. But, but there's so much intertwining in terms of the guilt, yet I guess I have a bias here, Andy, that, that if we can eradicate that guilt for ourselves, how wonderful it can be as mothers to experience what you're describing here. I know for me, it's been really, really good that both Dave and I can work professionally and have very fulfilling lives that way. And we do have, you talked about earlier, that autonomy and control, both of us have that such that we have the flexibility to be, you know, take a day in the middle of the day and go sign up to volunteer at the book fair or whatever, you know, things like that. I don't know if you've looked at all in terms of that guilt of, you know, going back to work after having a child or just the guilt of working and and needing to support a family that way? Well, I think there's an assumption that there has been, you know, maybe previous generations that you have to choose between, particularly moms, there is a stereotypical approach to expectations of men and women in the workplace, particularly with families. But there's been research that would indicate that working moms, for instance, if they have a regular work schedule and they have typically it's a more prestigious. In other words, there's a little bit more of a professional job. They actually are better parenting. Uh, when they do come home, they're more attentive to their children. They're more intentional with their children. So we see, you know, research that would indicate it's kind of just the opposite that, you know, working moms tend to be better when they come home. There's done some pretty interesting research. And I think some of this is Elaine uh, Van Steenbergen from the Netherlands has really looked at women in the workplace as well as um, Manat and Peterson from University of North Dakota. They've got some pretty supporting research to show that a lot of that is pretty outdated thinking. One of the things I found in our own family's life is, well, actually, this I don't find it in our family because it happens so naturally. I, I happen to be partnered with someone who's been very much a partner in marriage before we had kids and in the years now since we've had children. When I talk to other women who are struggling with this, part of it is really having to renegotiate some of those traditional gender norms because <laughs> it's not, <laughs> not, none of what you just said can be true if we're still expected to continue to support 100% of the housework or 100% of the cooking or all of those things. It reminds me a little bit of some of the research around faculty and their service at their institutions and how women end up having to feel like they have to provide more service in terms of serving on committees or mentoring students. And then especially when you get to women faculty of color, it really, really expands to a truly disproportionate amount of service, which doesn't always pay off in terms of tenure and promotion pursuits. Right. And that's, that is across the board. I think women working, working moms in particular, while they can certainly flourish in the workplace, they report that their loads at home don't diminish at all. And as you said, in some cases, they just have greater workloads in both places. That part is still fairly one-sided. You've explored these four different ways that we might experience work-life spillover. Now that we know a little bit about the literature, what can you tell us from a practical standpoint that we might learn that would help us enhance our own lives? Well, I mean, I can tell you from my own personal experience as well as my own research, 
We look at burnout and engagement as one continuum. So Christina Maslach at Berkeley has, you know, for years has talked about this engagement versus burnout. And so I think intuitively and empirically, we now understand that when people come home after being engaged at work, they actually bring energy into the workplace. They are investing that energy into their kids and their family, their partners, their, into their home life. And so, I mean, who does not want to have that at home? When I'm having a great day at work, my wife loves me to have a great day at work because it changes my attitude at home. Along with, with uh, Christine Maslach, uh, Michael Leiter developed uh, areas of work. And there's six areas that I think contribute to this engagement that we can bring home. This is what my research actually shows, that there's intrinsic motivation that creates this energy engagement, and it all tends to enhance the, the work to family spillover. And that's a doable workload. Not that we're over, overloaded, but a good workload. Uh, we have a sense of control of what we do. Of course, we usually work for other people. We had, do have deadlines, but there's that autonomy that I talk about. That's very important. Third, we need to feel like we're part of community, which for those of us in the academic community, that's something that I think we particularly enjoy. There needs to be a level of reward that we we get. And that's not just monetary, although that's important because we want to be paid enough to where compensation's not a problem for us. And there needs to be a sense of fairness. And then we need to be in a place where our personal values align with the organizational values. So Leiter would suggest, and I tend to agree with him, that if we have all six of those areas working well for us, then we will be more engaged at work. And if we are more engaged at work, we bring that positive energy and dedication and sense of accomplishment back into our work, into our family life and have a better family life. Any advice for us in terms of if we wanted to start to pursue some of those things? Any any? Because it's tough when you don't feel like you have that control, especially if you're already experiencing burnout. Any any first steps or initial things that might have a good payoff for us early well, on? I think intrinsic motivation is kind of what we take to the place. And those are the three areas. And that's a sense of connectedness, which is absolutely important. So look for ways to connect to other people. Mm-hmm. Feel like we actually have just a social support group. Have this sense of autonomy and control is what can you control Realize there are things that you can't control, but kind of focus on where do you get to make decisions. I think some people have more decision-making autonomy than they realize. And then the third is a sense of, of mastery, of being able to get better at something. We need to have a challenge. We need to kind of surprise ourselves, um, you know, every week of, I wasn't sure I was going to be able to accomplish that, but doggone it, I pulled it off. Those three things kind of contribute to our ability to go into the workplace intrinsically motivated. Now, there are places to where you don't have a culture where those three things are possible. And unfortunately, that sometimes is a place to where Adam, you're never going to thrive there. Mm-hmm. I really appreciate all three of these things because my locus of control does tend to be in- internal. <laughs> what, what can I do to change my circumstances? So I think about I've never visited or heard about a campus where there aren't at least some opportunities for that sense of connectedness, some of those formal opportunities for those social connections, but also, I mean, your colleague down the hall, there's always opportunities for coffee, even if it's not a formal thing that the university puts on. And then in terms of the autonomy and control, I've seen that so many times where people put themselves in the box that says, I can't do this. And it's it's just 
well, what if you tried? What would happen if you if you tried to exercise some of the autonomy you say isn't there and just the freedom that can come with that? And then lastly, again, institutions today, I don't know of any that don't have some kind of a faculty development initiative or a committee or even an actual institute or department dedicated to those things. And what a wonderful thing if if other people listening, and I imagine they've done this, Andy, are like you, and they know that joy of teaching, they probably wouldn't listen to this podcast if they didn't, all the ways that we can continually be thinking about becoming a better teacher. You know, what's the next challenge for ourselves? What's the next thing we can experiment with in our teaching and really continue to challenge each other and challenge ourselves? Absolutely. Yeah, I think for those of us that have been in the classroom for so long, that's the challenge is what can I do differently? And that keeps our mastery higher. So we had to keep challenging ourselves. And I also think that the classroom is one of the reasons that we're in the classroom because that's the one space that we do tend to think that we have more control than others. But we'll lose that enthusiasm if we're not challenging ourselves with learning new material or new methodologies or kind of stretch our mastery. I can't resist asking this final question before we get to the recommendation segment because I'm just so curious. You've been teaching a long time. What do you think of as one thing that you've really changed your mind about teaching since you first started doing it? Oh, easy. How much I don't know. When I first started teaching, I was absolutely convinced that I had to know more than our students. And I would work so hard at knowing everything. Now it's very freeing and liberating walking into a classroom, fairly ignorant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it's it's liberating. And, and I think it adds value to, at least for the graduate students, that there's an expectation as we have a shared learning experience and I get to learn from them and they have so much to teach me. I remember early on, I started out teaching computer classes, so it's not quite the same thing, but how scary that idea was to admit that you didn't know something. And then all these years later, once you're totally comfortable with it, of course you need to be confident that you're bringing value to the classroom, but what does that value look like? And it doesn't, for me, wind up being that I'm a wonderful, tremendous, limitless source of knowledge on really any topic. (laughs) Exactly. Well, this is the time in the show where we each get to share our recommendations, and I have two of them. One is that I read a book. It was actually recommended by James Lang. He wrote a review of it in the Chronicle. And he said words such as that it made him fall in love with libraries all over again, and just such a wonderfully written book. So it's called The Library Book by Susan Orlean. And I'm just going to read actually the first part of the description, because this is how gripping it was for me to pick up this book. It says, on the morning of April 29th, 1986, a fire alarm sounded in the Los Angeles Public Library. As the moments passed, the patrons and staff who had been cleared out of the building realized This was not the usual fire alarm. As one fireman recounted, once that first stack got going, it was goodbye, Charlie. The fire was disastrous. It reached 2,000 degrees and burned for more than seven hours. By the time it was extinguished, it had consumed 400,000 books and damaged 700,000 more. Investigators descended on the scene, but more than 30 years later, the mystery remains. Did someone purposefully set fire to the library? And if so, who? It's a really hard book to describe because it's a little bit of a mystery and and you kind of get enveloped in the idea of who might have done this and why and all of those things. But it's also very much a history of libraries. I didn't know that libraries were first only 
available to men and also wealthy men. So you had to be a man. You also had to be able to pay a fee to join a library. And I didn't know that that's how they started. They also have some stories about discrimination when it was legal and they had a woman who was running the Los Angeles library who was amazing. She made all these amazing changes. And then they just brought in a man and said, we're firing you because you're a woman and we're going to bring a man in to do your job. Mm-hmm. And they, it was very overt. I mean, today we still have discrimination lives a uh, long and healthy life, but it's just more that it's covered up today instead of just wow. being that open. Anyway, it's a wild ride of a book. It was definitely a page turner, not a, the normal kind of book I would have enjoyed. And I just enjoyed every minute of it. And also because we're here in California, it was interesting to read about the Los Angeles Public Library. I'd love to go up there and visit and just see some of the things that she described so well in the book. And my second recommendation is ridiculous. So Andy knows that we both had a colleague who recently had a baby. In fact, we've got some more babies coming in our campus as well. And so it turned out that this particular colleague was going to need to have a C-section. And I ended up having an emergency C-section with my first pregnancy and then a planned one, the second one. And so I'm going to recommend that if anyone knows someone who had a baby and could use this product, it is awesome. So I'm going to suggest that you get yourself or you get your friend who's going to have a baby, a grabber. And they're advertised on Amazon for the elderly, how if you were going to need to, instead of reaching down, you could just grab something. And they're so good, they could actually pick up a dime off the floor. But I love it for all kinds of purposes. My kids each have a grabber. They, it lets them get the, the clothes that are hanging on the second rung that's too high for them to reach. I love grabbing their grabbers to get something from under their bed because I don't like crawling under beds. So I'm going to suggest that people get themselves a grabber. And it's particularly useful if someone recently had a baby in C-section and doesn't want to do a whole lot of picking things up. Because I'll tell you what, I dropped so many things and would literally just get to the point where I'd go, you know what? I'm not picking that up. (laughs) It's just going to stay where it is. That's how done I was with picking things up. So a book, a grabber, and Andy, now it's your turn. Well, I'm stuck on that grabber. I think I'm going to get a couple of those (laughs) and just walk around with them and save me a few steps. Um, So resources for me that I think of right now, actually just a couple books that I've read related to career. There's a couple. We had Mitch Cousy actually do one of our workshops for our last conference, Why I Don't Work Here Anymore. He really kind of takes a look at the financial implications of, of a toxic work environment. Jeffrey Pfeffer from Stanford wrote a great book, Dying for a Paycheck, talks again about the high cost of uh, working in a job that doesn't work for you, not just the cost to the employee, but the cost to employers as well. And then kind of on the positive side, Jenny Blake's Pivot continues to, you know, really like, and what I like about Pivot is there's a lot of younger millennial women professionals that are particularly liking that book. And so that's great. That's really almost like a what colors your parachute for this generation. And then a book that I'm finishing up right now is Answering Why by Mark Perna. And this is great for me because he's specifically addressing what he's calling the why generation, but it's W-H-Y, why generation, asking why. And so he's including in that some millennials, primarily Gen Xers, and, and even the whys that are coming up. But it's really unleashing the passion, purpose, and performance for the younger generations. And so that's been pretty eye-opening and pretty exciting for me as I, as I read through this and I think of this group of younger cohorts coming into our colleges. So highly recommend both of those. Would you talk a little bit more about the one called Pivot? Because I have 
recommended the book, What Color Is Your Parachute, so many times yet. I sort of hesitate sometimes because it doesn't seem like it's kept quite as current. But what I like about it is it does give anyone who's job seeking a good structure. And sometimes I see students move away from, I don't have a syllabus telling me anymore when things are due. I don't have those social connections to help me during times of stress. Talk a little bit more about Pivot because I'm curious about this so as a replacement. Pivot is and does have probably the last half of the book is very similar to What Colors Your Parachute. Jenny Blake is the author. She gives very practical advice to not just job shifters, but people that are launching into their careers. I think she does a great job with that. The thing I really appreciate about how she begins the book is setting expectations, kind of what we were talking about earlier, that there is likely multiple paths that people can take throughout their careers. And I think it's a practical writing, but it also is, is based on some pretty sound theory. She doesn't get into a lot of complicated theoretical explanations, very practical, very easy to read. And I think people are finding it quite helpful. Andy, thank you so much for giving up your time this afternoon to help us learn more about positive work-life spillover. And thank you for recommending four books that I want to start reading this evening. I don't even know how I'm going to do that, but it's just been such a pleasure to get to have this conversation. These are things that we don't often get to talk about, you and I, and it was just special to me that you agreed to come on the show. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation. Wow. I have quite a few books I want to start reading all at the same time. Andy Stenhouse, thank you so much for joining me on today's episode of Teaching in Higher Ed, giving us so much to think about in terms of the ways in which our work life can positively spill over into our home life. I really appreciate your work with me and all of the things that we've gone through together and also just appreciate you coming and sharing about this topic today. Thanks to all of you for listening. And if you're interested in this topic, you might also be, I'm like Amazon right now, you might also be interested in my book called The Productive Online and Offline Professor. You can find out more about it and the topics that are contained in it by going to teachinginhighered.com. And it's right at the top of the homepage. You'll see the little book peeking up from the bottom. (laughs) Thanks so much for listening. I'll see you next time on Teaching in Higher Ed.